This is episode 33 of Untangled Faith. In this episode, I keep talking with my friend Emily about grief and her thoughts on suffering in community and how COVID has impacted her as a person who has a chronic blood disorder that puts her in that at-risk category. If you're new here, don't miss the first episodes in this series on grief. You can find them starting with episode 30. It's this double kind of stabbing to my heart of this is the thing that God has given me such eyes for through my own suffering. My own life does not matter in your calculus. And also the deepest conviction that I have of what it looks like to live out what I believe is the heart of God for the flourishing of all people and the lifting up of the lonely also does not matter in your calculus. But it did matter when it was scoring points for your side. This is Amy Fritz, and you're listening to Untangled Faith, a podcast for anyone who has found themselves confused or disillusioned in their faith journey. If you want to hold on to your faith while untangling it from all the things that are not good and true, this is the place for you. One of the things that we've been talking about a lot of COVID is like unprecedented times or whatever. And I'm like, um, I would like to introduce you to the bubonic plague. <laughs> the Spanish flu of 1918 lasted into the early 1920s. Like it wasn't a few weeks. So we, we kind of have these blinders on of our own lives when it's everything it breaks those blinders and gives us eyes to see. One of the things that I say a lot is it's a mercy, but it's a hard one. Having access to more information, like you said, it's it's good and it's yeah. a burden. Yeah, it's both. And I think that I think in all of this conversation that it that's why it's so important to know yourself well and to have people who can help you do that. To say this is a thing that I have energy for. Yeah. Um, this is, this is a thing that I can handle and still do my other things. And this is a thing that isn't. And, and I think sometimes we think like, if if I don't care the absolute most about all of these things, then that's the same thing as indifference. That's not true. That's just not how it's our brains aren't designed to work that way and our bodies aren't capable of it. So we have to kind of do triage of what we can give our energy to. And I think that's part of why it's so important to to suffer in community because then it's not me and my thing. I care about the things that I care about. And then I have all these other people who care about these same things. And if we have, are these different things, right? And so if we have that in the framework of like, what is just, what is for human flourishing, what is lifting up the lowly, then we can really see it as parts of a body where we're all doing the same thing in these different ways instead of I have to be this whole thing and do all of this. This is an important observation from Emily. It's the tension we all hold. We can see our own needs and struggles clearly, and sometimes it's more than we can handle to carry our own load. It makes sense that we don't see or we shut down when it comes to the idea of assisting someone else with their load. Suffering in community gives us a fighting chance to ensure that no one is left behind. And I think that's been one of the hardest things for me with COVID Mm -hmm. is that I understand that everyone does not have chronic illness. 
I understand that everyone is not carrying all of that same calculus in their head all the time. And so I have this constant wrestling match of trying to have grace for that and understand that like, yes, there are other considerations like social and and emotional health and people do have to work like to eat and and thrive and, and all those things. So I understand there's a calculus there. So that's why I think that the communal framework is important. If the framework is, this doesn't apply to me, that's different than the framework being, we're all bringing these different things to the equation Mm -hmm. of how we all serve each other and thrive together. And so for me, that it does bother me because it affects me. I was the person who sat during Lent outside of an abortion clinic near my town 15 years ago and prayed every day for 40 days for, for the women and their babies going in and out of that abortion clinic. And the same people who are mad at me for talking about COVID thought that was awesome. And, and to me, it's the same framework. I value the lives of, especially of the vulnerable, because that's the heart of God. It's this double kind of stabbing to my heart mm-hmm. of this is the thing that God has given me such eyes for through my mm-hmm. own suffering, but that was already there as well. And so it, it's, it's that my own life does not matter in your calculus. Mm-hmm. And also the deepest conviction that I have of what it looks like to live out what I believe is the heart of God for the flourishing mm-hmm. of all people and the lifting up of the lonely also does not matter in your calculus, but it did matter when it was scoring points for your side. Mm. And and my, my voice and my boldness and my articulation of these things was something that you were proud of and welcomed and platformed Mm. when it was on your side and for your tribe. Yeah. But when it calls you to make a sacrifice then I'm being political. It's not political for me to talk about abortion, but it is political for me to talk about COVID. How is that even possible? And so I think that's been the hardest thing for me. It's the two things together of the thing that I have been praised for within my faith community of the strengths that God gave me. Yeah. And the thing that I am most broken in, in the weakness of my body being fused together to put me in opposition to the people who are supposed to be my champions in both Mm. and were my champions until it became uncomfortable for them. Mm. And I already knew that in regards to my illness, but I could pretend that it didn't matter for a long time or that they just didn't understand. But I really thought that if it was in life and death, if it was life and death and not just me being tired, they would get it. And, and a worldwide thing. Right. It's not that you don't, that you disagree with me. I don't care. I a little bit thrive on disagreement. It's not that it's, do you even really know me and love me mm. to, to think that my, my conviction and my passion about this is politics. Yeah. And did you think that before when you agreed with me? Why was it only divisive 
when it was disagreeing with you. What was the timeline of you walking through this this COVID, I want to say roller coaster, but it has mostly been downhill. <laughs> you told me that when you first heard this pandemic is happening, you just knew it would be bad news. Yeah. What did you expect from the church? How were you surprised or not surprised early on? I actually was really pleasantly surprised early on. I think when the shutdown first happened and everything was so uncertain, I really saw churches around me like, being who I expected them to be. I'm from Oklahoma where we had some major tornadoes when I was a church administrator about eight years ago. And we just turned our church into headquarters for tornado disaster relief for an entire summer. And and Oklahoma Baptists, we're like Olympian level disaster relief people. Also like being from Oklahoma, we have such a sense of shared suffering in our history We have the Dust Bowl, we have the Murrow bombing, the federal building bombing in 1995. We have tornadoes that we we know by the dates, like we just say the day and everyone in the state of Oklahoma knows what you're talking about and can tell you the path of the cities that it went through. Even in, in things that we haven't handled well, like the Tulsa Race Massacre and the Trail of Tears and Native American removal, we have this deep communal suffering woven into us as a people. I think that was the disconnect for me is at first, like I saw churches canceling events and bringing people groceries. And it was that like two months of what I remember from doing disaster relief. And I was like, yeah, cause this is who we are and this is what we do. And then we just all got over it. Oklahoma lifted restrictions really early and, and we didn't even really have a lot of statewide restriction anyway. Um, we had some, but it was way more piecemeal. And even before things were lifting, people were just over it. And on the one hand, like, I get that. But on the other hand, we, we built a memorial mm-hmm. and a museum for 198 people, as we should have. 13,000 Oklahomans have died. And not that people don't care, like they're angry at you that you do. And so that's been the hardest thing for me is trying to trying to resolve that dissonance yeah. of who I have experienced us to be yeah. and the apathy at best towards mass suffering and, and to, the, to the life and death of other people. The thing that really jump-started everything shutting down was the Thunder game getting called. Because everyone was like, oh, the NBA shutting down, like, stuff's happening. Yeah. And it was this thing of like, oh, well, if this sports team that makes a lot of money isn't going to have sports, and this must be a real thing. And fast forward to now, at every level, from like seven-year-olds to the NBA, we're just having all of our stuff. Like, nothing's happening. And so I think for me, like the dissonance is, okay, did, did we shut down things because we didn't know what was going on or did we shut down things because we wanted to try to save lives? Yeah. Cause if it was because we didn't know what was going on, then okay. And we're not interested in saving lives and whatever, but like we know so much more now And we don't even have to shut down. We could just do little things. 
Yeah. And, and it's somehow liberal to talk about yeah. the value of human lives. Like I, I was there when we yeah. talked about euthanasia in the nineties, yeah. I was there when in Oklahoma, we have a thing in the state capital called Rose Day, where you take roses to your state legislatures to show that you care about the value of unborn lives. And then also having the state of the state address with zero masks and zero mention of COVID. While we had the most per capita deaths in 2021, it's the dissonance for me. I don't know who we are anymore. Yeah. Emily, when I I hear you talking and you like words. I do like words. I mean, that in the best way, like you are a a meaning maker. You are working on telling a story to yourself Mm -hmm. and to other people. And I see you trying to rewrite this story Hmm. and in a way that is like, Hey, I really believe if you listened and you just heard this thing that I'm saying right here, it's like, Mm -hmm. I'm not asking you to give up your business. Right. I'm asking you to incorporate a care for these people Mm -hmm. that you have left behind. So in talking with, with Connie, she said, you know, not only are the stages of grief, not linear. They're all together. And here you are. And you say you move really easily into anger. Mm. But I also see that this is bargaining Emily that says, you're like, I have some things to say. I wouldn't have to be in this and I wouldn't have to feel this discarded feeling. If we could have some sort of imagination about how to get from where we are to Mm. where we really want to be. Mm. And you know, from our beginning of our conversation, you hear the stories of people that want their businesses to run and they, they're they seeing something different than you're seeing. You're tapping into your empathy. Mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting. Grief means that we had something mattered and that you mm-hmm. did have hope and that we are in the middle of that story. This reference to being in the middle of the story and wanting to skip ahead is a reference to an episode 30 conversation with Curtis Chang. If you have not listened to that episode, I highly recommend checking it out when you're done with this one. I will leave a link in the show notes. Hmm. He said, we're at minute 10 in the movie and we want to be spoiled on the ending. We want to lean into the person that gives us the easy answer for the plot. All of that to say, I just see all of that. I see all of that in in your grief of, hey guys, maybe we can write a better ending. Maybe we could write our way towards a different yeah. chapter. I love that you kind of use that analogy because that is how I tend to talk about God because I like the words. This idea of like, God is writing this story of making something that is perfect and it being broken, and then he makes it even better than it was in its perfection. Like that's the story that God is writing of human history. And we have this invitation to not just be characters in that story, but co-creators yeah. of it. And so the the stories that we tell ourselves as individuals and as a people, they don't have to be happy and shiny. We can tell the truth about the hard things and still have a story that is good because the author of the story takes perfect things and makes them better. Yeah. I was thinking a lot 
in the past week about bargaining and depression because I knew we were going to talk about it. I, I like to think of bargaining as like less aggressive arguing. I kind of realized in thinking about it that like denial and anger and bargaining and depression are really two sides of the same coin. Denial is saying this cannot be true. And then anger says, how could we do this? How could you do this? And then bargaining is saying, this can't be true. What can I do to make this not be true? And depression is saying, how could you do this? How could we do this? And so it's, it's the same questions, yeah. just with a different tone. Because bargaining is, is denial, right? It's trying to get back to that state of denial where you didn't yeah. know the sad thing. I, I think a lot of times anger is being mad that we know the sad thing as much as it is at the sadness, right? That's why it's there with denial, right? And, and so bargaining is trying to get back, to go backwards to where you could not have to hold that thing anymore because it hurts to have it. And so you try to get back and you try to get back and you, and then you can't. And all that's left is a deep sadness. And that's why depression. And and when we say depression, we don't mean like clinical depression because that's another thing. We mean like a, a deep, like whole self sadness about a thing, right? When you break through that self-protection of denial and and you have that anger that you direct whatever way that you direct it, that is really anger at the existence of the sad thing. And so then you go back to trying to get where you could be protected from it again. Hmm. And eventually all of that energy that is all different kinds of self-protection burns up. And what you're left is the actual sadness of the thing that you've been trying to protect yourself from the whole time. Mm -hmm. And that was really where I found myself this week. Eventually, you run out of ways to run from sadness. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. you cannot get to that last thing of acceptance without really being in the sadness. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of what our problem with COVID is we're all, all of us, like almost all the time, me included, hanging out in denial, bargaining and anger. Mm-hmm. And until we get to a place as a people where we can really sit in the truth of the sadness, mm-hmm. we're going to keep prolonging this process for ourselves. And we're never going to go through a a grief process that is healing. And and I think that's not just true about COVID, right? That's true about dealing with things like our history with race and our, all of these things that like, but I like that you said that you wish that you had talked about joy because I actually think that joy and sadness are companions in the same way that bargaining and denial and anger and sadness are companions. I think that the sadness is true companion. Once anger lets that door open, you see Mm -hmm. that on the other side of the room is joy. Yeah. Like I remember when inside out came out and I think I talked about this last time that I, 
I thought that my driver was anger, but it's actually fear and like fear hides under the desk and lets anger drive and Mm -hmm. rude, but true. But I also think that everything breaks because joy cannot let sadness in, she thinks. But what really happens is when joy stops running from sadness and starts listening to her, And realizes that sadness sees things that she doesn't have eyes for. Mm. And so she, she starts listening to sadness and realizing that sadness is not there to hurt her. Sadness is there for her. And so what happens is sadness saves joy from herself because all of those self-protections end up being destructive in the end if we don't cut them off when we should. And so eventually those self-protections turn into self-destruction. And so that that truth of sadness that is not afraid in her book about Advent, Fleming Rutten says that Advent takes a fearless inventory of the darkness. And I think Mm -hmm. that's true of lament. Like lament tells a fearless, undaunted truth about the sad things and the broken things and all those things, not because that's all there is, but because lament knows that's how we get through to joy. Mm. And, and one of the beautiful things about Jesus is that he gives us a means that allows us to not be afraid mm. of something being broken. Yeah. We, don't, we don't have to protect the goodness of God and the goodness that God gives us and the redemption that he offers us and the wholeness that he offers us from these other things. Because the means that he's giving us those things is brokenness. Mm-hmm. And so we can have unfiltered, unabashed, fearless honesty about all of these sad things and eyes to see them and ears to hear them and hearts to fill them. And know that joy is still going to be there sitting next to us because Mm. those things do not erase it Mm. because that's not where it comes from. We have this idea if we really believe God and believe that he's good, then, then we can't sit in the darkness of sad things. Yeah. But Jesus is described in the promise of the Messiah as being a man of suffering acquainted with grief. Yeah. It, it just is a profoundly unbiblical way of looking at suffering. Much of this conversation is birthed from Emily's experience with how she has personally been impacted by the response of the Christian community to COVID. But I love how her talking specifically about this gives insights that can be universally applied to whatever it is that is the cause of your grief. I've been wondering if our discomfort with our own pain makes it harder for us to enter into the pain of others. And I've been thinking about this since hearing Emily put her finger on the importance of suffering in community. I don't see a way forward when it comes to a pandemic or cultivating healthy faith communities without suffering in community. Working this out in community means we see how our actions impact others and encourages us to find ways forward we would have never considered on our own. In the book, Prophetic Lament, A Call for Justice in Troubled Times, Dr. Soong Chang Ra writes this about Lamentation's representation of the suffering of Israel. Suffering 
is endured by the entire community. It is a communal experience. And he goes on to say, Lamentations recognizes that individual voices from the full range of citizens must be heard. I read through the book of Lamentations as I read Dr. Ra's book, and he's right. In those chapters of lament, we hear the voices of men and women and children. We hear the voices of the young and the old, the powerful and the weak. I can't close this out any better than with this quote from Randy Woodley about the peace that results when an entire community engages in this work together. The kind of peace Shalom represents is active and engaged. Shalom is communal, holistic, and intangible. There is no private or partial shalom. The whole community must have shalom, or no one has shalom. Thanks for listening. This podcast is made possible by support from my Patreon community. For a few dollars a month, they help underwrite the costs of this podcast, and in return, they get a few perks. One of those perks is that my sustainer level supporters have access to bonus content. Last month, I shared some extra audio from my conversation with Curtis Chang, and I also shared a lighthearted conversation I had with my husband, Nathan, in which I quizzed him about all the goings on on Twitter. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, check out the details at patreon.com slash untangledfaith. And if you loved this episode, share it with a friend. That is one of the best ways you can support this show. You can find show notes at untangledfaithpodcast.com, and you can find me on Instagram and Facebook as Untangled Faith. I'm also Faith Untangled on Twitter. I'll meet you back here next week when we catch up with Kat and Colby Wilkins as they share more of their story.